Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, I'm joined by guest co-host Corinne Lytle-Bonine, and we feature Julie Johnstone, Associate Director of Design with Great Ecology. Julie is an accomplished landscape designer with 10 years of experience and has a dual master's degree in landscape architecture and regional planning from Cornell University. Her experience includes master plans, feasibility studies, education campuses and site design, park and trail planning and design, and commercial campus landscapes. Julie's current focus is on developing landscape designs and master plans, which simultaneously address diverse community needs while promoting ecological balance and restoration. She has designed and implemented public participation strategies for comprehensive plans, waterfront master plans, and recreation feasibility studies. Julie uses her backgrounds in psychology, planning, and landscape design to promote cohesive and collaborative teams. While the practical elements of design and planning are on the forefront of her mind, she has a keen eye for design and enjoys conceptual design iterations, which you'll hear more about from her shortly. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. Hi, I'm Corinne. And today we have Julie Johnstone joining us. Julie is Associate Director of Design with Great Ecology. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we appreciate the invitation. Of course. So first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Well, I'm actually new to the AEP podcast community, but um, I first learned about it through you, Jessa, um, since we work together at Great Ecology. But that's how I first learned about it. Great. I don't I don't know if I knew that. So are you involved with APA? APA, yes. Um, APA Amer- American Planning Association. Um, and I'm probably more involved with ASLA, which is the American Society of Landscape Architects. But um, but being that I'm both a landscape designer and a planner, um, I would I'm kind of Touching both both realms, the planning and landscape architecture realms. So many acronyms. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. Need a little cheat sheet or something. Yeah. Well, I know like AEP and Corinne, you know more about this, has done some events in the past with APA and there's some alignment mm-hmm. there. So um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for ASLA. We've, oh, uh, really? we've thrown some mean uh, holiday parties uh, all together. <laughs> so we have, we have fun. <laughs> I can confirm. I've You've been to some of those. (laughs) They're they're the fun parties. Um, So Julie, to get started, so you are a landscape designer and a planner. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, have the benefit of knowing a little bit more about your background, your educational background. So what attracted you to a profession, like to this profession in this industry? Well, um, I'm one of those people who I had a very circuitous kind of path to, uh, where I landed right now. So, um, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. path. (laughs) It would take a very long time to tell you the whole thing, but, uh, I studied psychology at UC Santa Barbara. And after I graduated, I, um, yeah, gauchos. Go gauchos. Um, Yeah. Um, after I graduated, I just wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I wasn't ready for a PhD in psychology. And um, so I ended up doing interior design, uh, which I did for a couple of years. 
And then while I was um, practicing as interior designer, I started really wanting um, something that had uh, a broader impact, um, which kind of led me to start looking into um, planning and landscape architecture. But while I was trying to figure things out, I moved down to South America um, and lived there for a year in Chile, which was amazing and beautiful. And um, when you go to a new, uh, such a different environment, it kind of opens your eyes to um, a lot of a lot of things, uh, cultural differences, and and just um, kind of who who you are. I think uh, so. That's what it did for me. Um, I really, my eyes are really opened to some of the environmental um, and social inequality kind of issues that were intersecting where I was living. And we have the same issues here in the United States. Um, but, uh, it was while I was down there that I started reading some books, trying to help my Spanish, um, reading these books in Spanish about planning and landscape architecture. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure I fully understood everything because it was in Spanish, but <laughs> whatever I understood led me down the path that, that we are that I am on now. Um, so when I came back from Chile, I applied to grad school for planning um, and started doing that program and then um, and then simultaneously applied to a program in landscape architecture because uh, I really wanted to be on a creative side of enacting change in the built environment, um, in particular, um, climate solutions and uh, things like that. So I was really intrigued by kind of the broad, broad skill um, ideas of planning, but then wanted to have the tools to create uh, solutions on the ground. Um, so that's how I ended up um, with the, the dual master's degree in planning and landscape architecture. And it was a wonderful experience. And um, yeah, I'm very happy with that decision. So. Julie, that is just striking such a nerve with me. I'm also UCSB graduate. I yeah. did do studies. Um, but after graduating, I spent a year in Peru um, working Ooh. for a couple of different orphanages in um, the Ayacucho area. And, you know, same thing, spent a year down there, came back and was just, you know, really trying to find, you know, how to apply what I learned there. And then, you know, took a little bit of a different route than you did doing more, you know, straight secret practice, environmental permitting practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, uh, just, I really, um, can feel <laughs> where you're coming from and I, I'm, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you're able to implement that in landscape architecture, um, where sometimes, you know, I feel like I fall a little bit short doing everything I want to do, being on the permitting and mm. environmental evaluation side. So I, uh, really appreciated hearing that story from you. <laughs> well, the environmental permitting, uh, thank you. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed that. And, I was just going to say that the environmental permitting side is is so important. You know, I wouldn't downplay the importance of that by any means. It's super powerful mechanism for what actually gets implemented on the ground. So um, that's amazing to hear that we had a somewhat similar <laughs> yeah. track. I think it's impressive too, or something I've noticed with planners is you guys just see the world and everything so broadly. And this is like, just such a, like, I think I'm a big picture person. And then I speak with a planner. I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait a second. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's interesting that you both had that similar experience of like going to another country, uh, you know, new culture, experiencing that. And then, uh, you know, separately in your career past, like explored that or took that into a planning mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. And Julie, I know, like you said, Corinne, I have a few different directions I want to go with this, or I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, we go down one path and we'll come back, I'm sure. But I think with with landscape architecture and work, how do you approach, I guess, like creatively, you're talking about, so you have the planner with the big systems, and then you have the creative side with the landscape architecture. And how do, how do you work with the environment and pull in your knowledge and like passion for the environment within landscape architecture beyond just like the requirements? Hmm. Um, I guess I would answer that by saying that uh, I think landscape architecture is art and science, um, which is why it's so amazing to work with ecologists um, and biologists because uh, they're actually experts in the science um, uh, that, that we would want to embed our designs with. Um, and so um, I think that's how how I think about it is, um, you know, pulling pulling from the knowledge um, and expertise that uh, that people have who are uh, well aware of habitat ecosystems or plant, you know, we as landscape architects, we do know a fair amount about plants, but we're by no mean, means experts in the entire ecosystem um, and how it all gets pulled together. So, um, yeah, so I guess to answer your question, like I just try to embed designs with a scientific um, an analytical foundation um, based on like the science that our our team of ecologists uh, brings brings forward as a basis for like an artful solution. Yeah, I'm thinking about that and sitting with it for because there's you know this creative side, but then there's these confines that you have to work within and. Mm-hmm. Yes, and definitely. So it's a really it's a really interesting field though because you're able to do it and you're able to be creative and expressive while following these guidelines. And I think what you said about how much landscape architects know about plants, something just you, I, I'm very uh, I, I know it's a field. I know it exists. the The details of it, not as familiar with, but for some reason. I sat in on a presentation not that long ago with you, Julie, actually, when it was, what is landscape architecture? How does it work? And, um, you know, the, and like, how does it work? How is it practiced? And what's the result of that? And I remember vividly, this just really stuck with me where there's this tree in a courtyard of a, of a building complex. And it was like, well, in the summer it gets hot and this tree has leaves and it provides shade. And then in the winter, the leaves fall off so you can get sunlight in there. And it's one of those things that was, such an aha moment for me because it was so obvious, but also I could see why there is that scientific approach to it as well. We're like, you need to know like why this tree, not just because it looks pretty, Mm -hmm. but it Mm -hmm. has this function too. Mm -hmm. And so kind of on that note, like with your education and experience, like how do you, what's the coursework for learning about plants and like gaining that knowledge? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's fairly layered, I guess. So, um, 
Um, so there's the piece related to learning the actual plants, like as kind of putting your horticulturalist hat on and trying to learn the actual plants, um, names, the structure, what water requirements do they have? So there's the actual fact learning um, that that uh, landscape architecture education kind of requires. Um, but there's so much beyond that, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to unfairly characterize landscape architects as um, as our education being all about plants, um, only because there's a lot more to it. Right. So there's, um, and I think you were alluding to this earlier, which is that, um, you know, there's environmental regulations um, and policies that we need to design to. Um, there's American Disabilities Act. Uh, there's water requirements that vary by, by region. And here in California, that's obviously a hot topic. Um, but, um, so, uh, so going back to the question about planting, um, so there's the actual fact, fact, um, the, the actual facts of, of plants, uh, what survives where, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then in a landscape architecture program, um, it's a lot of times it's really centered around the studio experience, um, which is that you have um, either a real or a fictitious um, project site where you get to take all of the things that you're learning about uh, landscape architectural theory, about plants, about um, ADA, uh, that sort of thing, uh, stormwater stormwater management, and you practice on on a site. And um, there, it usually goes on over the course of a semester. Um, and there's a lot of um, a lot that you learn about. Uh, just through the process of presenting your your ideas and your project um, and implementing your knowledge on this project site. Um, and so I'd say it's very rigorous. Um, a lot, uh, the studio culture, it tends to be very um, no holding back. Uh, we, we definitely get our egos kind of taken down a notch. Um, you know, this idea is good. This idea is terrible. Uh, no holding back. So, um, so yeah, we, we gain a lot, or at least I gained a lot through that experience of testing my ideas, um, illustrating ideas uh, and having feedback on them. So you, we'd get feedback about plants, you know, like that was a terrible idea. You put a evergreen in the middle of that courtyard, you know, that's not a great idea with the, the sun aspect or, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, and so. Or sorry, sorry, you're going, I think you're kind of going uh, down this path I was curious about too, is that how do you, how do you get started? So you go to grad school, Cornell, right? Mm -hmm. Cornell grad, go mm -hmm. to get your um, graduate degree. And then how did you end up where you're at now? <laughs> what, like, what is <laughs> yeah, the studio? We like, how do you get into them? Like, how does it work? How does it work? Um, well, if you're lucky uh, during your graduate or undergrad um, experience, you've had internship um, experiences. And, and I did have, um, I worked in a campus planning office at Cornell and I did a couple of other, uh, internships and research projects, but, um, a lot of times you just, you just start applying and you pull together, um, 
all of your best work into a portfolio um, to represent you know where you're coming from, what your what your ethos is as a landscape designer, um, and to represent yourself to employers and try to put your most beautiful graphics and images in there, um, and then hopefully you get hired. And I I did start working um, pretty much right after grad school at an interdisciplinary design firm. Um, and it was a great experience. We had uh, architects, interior designers, uh, structural engineers, mechanical engineers, just the full team of designers um, all the way through from concept. Uh, we would go all the way from concept and master planning all the way through to construction administration. So like the end of the project, uh, we had permitters on staff. So, um, so I learned a lot about different types of uh, projects and um, markets when I was working there. And the project that you mentioned earlier, the one with the tree in the courtyard, that was a project I did um, very early career. And um, yeah, that one that one was very compelling for me as well. I really liked working on that. Um, so so yeah, I and then after working at uh, the interdisciplinary design firm, then I worked at a design build firm, um, which uh, was an amazing experience to just kind of uh, learn a little bit more about how how our projects are built. Um, it makes you think more deeply about um, the details and the specifications and um, just communication, visual, uh, graphic, and verbal written, uh, like honing those skills was really important, um, in that setting. And then, uh, actually I intersected with my, my current boss, um, at the very first firm that I was, uh, talking about. So we were colleagues there and then she contacted me when she started working, um, at Great Ecology, uh, which, is like I mentioned earlier, like it's it's um, amazing to be working with um, scientists, uh, ecologists, biologists to kind of help inform, not help, but like inform, analyze, like uh, how our designs are implemented in the real world. So that's kind of that's how I came to be here. I think a lot. I think a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> um, just finishing up undergrad or grad school, they just, it's like, just put your portfolio out there and just try to get in where you can. Just just put yourself out there as much as possible. Um, a lot of networking, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of professions, but in this case, you have a, a lot of work product for a potential employer to really look at um, and kind of make assessments of your skills and how you would fit in with the team. And that's how we um, assess people coming to our team, to join our team at Great Ecology. And maybe just a completely shameless plug for AEP with that message is that we do offer a lot of really different opportunities for students or recent grads to come to AEP events, either at reduced prices. We offer free membership to students, um, but also coming up, we have our uh, AEP conference in Tahoe where there are volunteer opportunities for students, um, as well as, you know, check your local chapters for any, you know, in-person speed networking or resume workshops or whatnot, because it's, you know, really the best way to 
make that move from a student to professional is exactly what Julie said, to build that network and use any opportunity you can to have that one-on-one or two-on-one FaceTime with uh, existing professionals. Absolutely. It's, I mean, networking is so, so huge. And I think once, like, I've stayed in touch with a lot of people that I worked with over the years. And that's a very powerful network in and of itself. That's how I got the, that's how I came to work um, at Great Ecology. Um, And so the network just keeps building. Um, But that's amazing that you guys um, have that program. It's, it's uh, definitely, I think having a strong mentor early on is such a confidence booster and guide to, um, to people just entering their profession. Yeah, I think, and Julie, I, I can't believe I didn't say this the first time, but one more shameless plug. We are <laughs> I love it. introducing right now our inaugural um, mentorship program. At oh, AE. sweet. So uh, we are taking registrations now through the end of the month to sign up to either be a mentor, a mentee, or uh, and or I should say participate in peer mentoring uh, groups. So you do need to be an AEP member, but again, free for students. So if mentorship is something that you're interested in, please go to our website, check it out. Um, you can register now, um, or definitely, you know, contact myself, um, or our other, uh, mentorship committee chair, Connie, uh, DeBriva for any other questions. That's amazing that you guys offer that. Um, I think a mentor-mentee relationship is so beneficial on both sides, really. Well, and I, I was, I was smiling big because I'm like, oh, I was like, Julie, I was like, Corinne, I was like, oh, she didn't mention mentorship. And then, oh, I was like, did, I was like, we could have written this better. This is perfect. And I'm so glad we're kind of going down this topic because I love it. And I'm so excited for the AEP mentorship program. You can sign up for their email list, get information on that or on the website. And, um, you know, Julie, I know you were the catalyst for, uh, a mentorship program with great ecology. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that the idea for that, um, partly came from the first firm that I worked at. Um, there was like a kind of peer program, um, a buddy system almost, uh, that you would assist new employees with getting their, their, um, feet under them. And, um, you know, Great Ecology has um, a lot of very smart and talented people, and a, a good portion are fairly are are, are on the earlier side um, of their profession. And like I just said, to I think that a mentor mentee relationship is beneficial on both sides. Um, and so that was. You know, I, I think I always approach it from from that standpoint. Like I learn a lot when I talk to my mentees, and I hope that they that the conversations we have, like maybe they don't learn a lot from me, but maybe they learn a lot through talking about um, what what is circling around their heads or what they're experiencing in the workplace. And um, I think. Uh, the part of the catalyst um, or the idea behind having establishing a um, mentor mentee program uh, with you, Jessa, at Great Ecology was that um, I 
and I'm a remote employee. So some of it was selfish. Like I want to, I want to connect more, um, and be a resource to, um, to my colleagues. Um, but, um, so there's that side of it. There, there was the connecting people who are remote and, uh, and local to, to San Diego. Um, but, but also that I think, um, it's just good to have somebody to have as a sounding board. Um, and I saw that, um, there, that some of our employees maybe didn't realize that they could utilize a sounding board. Like who could I talk to about this or, Oh, actually that, that was good that I had somebody to sort through that workplace issue, that professional development um, idea that I had, it was just a spark, but I talked it through with my mentor and it's actually worth pursuing and it's not as hard as I thought. Um, so I think it just helps open up avenues, uh, both for the mentee and for the mentor. Like, how can we improve this workplace or how can we provide more professional development opportunities? Um, it's not as big of a hurdle as we thought it was going to be. It doesn't cost as much as we thought it, it was going to cost or you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think something you touched on there is having creating a little bit of a structured environment to set those conversations up because there are people, um, you know, on, like you said earlier in the profession later, it doesn't matter where you just yeah. need a sounding board. And it might be things that you, that might be easier to internalize because you think, oh, I don't want to bother someone. They don't have time, or I don't know who to go to for this, or mm -hmm. it might not, you know, make sense from like a org chart perspective or something like that. Yeah. And so I think I was thinking about that too with networking. Networking, it's like, yeah, just go network. It sounds easy, but it's really hard to start. And I'm an I'm an outgoing extroverted person, but when I go to networking events, I'm like at the wall, like, oh, who would I talk to? I don't know anybody here. Like, mm -hmm. so I can only imagine, you know, different personalities and and types of backgrounds coming out of like while they're in school or coming out of school or switching careers, how difficult it is to show up. So when you have this framework like AEP, the free student membership, I any students I come across, I number one thing I say, AEP, go there, sign up. It's free. You have nothing yeah. to lose, literally. And there's a built-in network of people who are willing um, and interested in supporting you. And then now AEP is also added on the mentorship aspect. And so when you're able to do that, um, setting up, again, that framework where it's like, oh, you need you the early advice and ongoing advice is you need a mentor. You need a mentor. You need to network. You need a mentor. It's like, well, mm -hmm. where? It's not as simple as just yeah. asking someone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes it is. So you should always ask if there's someone of interest that you mm -hmm. want to be your mentor. But I think that um, setting up that framework for students to apply and then same within the business as well, It's it may seem like, and I can speak from experience working with Julie, where you know this, this peer mentorship was established and it's um, very low level of management. It's just, you set up the relationships and let them kind of flourish and establish that. And it's been, um, it's been a really great program and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback about that. So anyway, I'm all about networking and mentorship. And yeah. I think one thing I would add is, you know, we've seen over the last, you know, maybe three, four years is that there's, you know, maybe a collective acceptance or understanding that there's a lot going on kind of 
outside of what, you know, is kind of the old school definition of like the workplace that really does impact the workplace and having things like mentorship programs or, um, you know, even networking events gives people a baseline to, you know, talk about these things and, and bring them into the workplace a little more, um, in a, you know, less formal setting. And, you know, I'm certainly not suggesting we're going to sit down like in a meeting with wildlife agencies and, you know, <laughs> discuss things like that. But I, I do think that there's value to being able to, you know, bring in some of the, you know, outside influences that we're all seeing and, and, and talk about them, you know, in a workplace or workplace adjacent setting. Yeah, for sure. I always think about like, um, like, something you said, Jessa, earlier was that um, you're very outgoing and even you at a networking event, you're like, you know, to to the wall. Um, and I'm I'm definitely an introvert, so I'm definitely on the wall. But um, one thing that I think about um, in a mentor-mentee relationship is, um, regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, um, you never know like what the other person, like what the other person's perspective is going to be and how whatever tip they give you is going to help with whatever issue that you face. I, I have a hard time with small talk. I don't know who could be my mentor. What am I even going to talk to them about? You know, so all those things like um, in that relationship, um, as long as it's approached with an open mind um, and with the idea that um, this is just going to increase my awareness of, um, the tools that I have, um, and like my unique, I guess, abilities and characteristics that I bring to the workplace and kind of bolstering that sense of like, who, who, who am I as a professional? And yeah, I don't like small talk, but you know, here are my, here are the tools that we've come up with to deal with that. Um, I don't mind small talk personally, but um, <laughs> I know some people have a real aversion to it. So um, I'm the queen of small talk. Get, get into a little one layer down. I'm like, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I'm out. No, I'm, I'm totally teasing. But it's I'm. It's interesting you said that because I was at a networking event um, very recently, and I, you know, I. This event, for some reason, I felt comfortable and I was kind of working the room. I was shaking hands. I was like, oh, I was feeling good about nice. it. And <laughs> I went with a friend who hates networking, is an introvert. And mm. we we talk about this quite a bit. I'm like, you just got to show up. You just got to go and get out there. And so my friend, um, someone had told me, they're like, oh, she left. She's in the car when you're ready. I'm like, because we rode there together. You're like, what? <laughs> and it was interesting because when I, when I was with uh, this friend, she was talking to someone really engaged in like a deep conversation about her profession. And when I talked to her afterwards, she's like, I just hate small talk. Like I hate it. I'm like, well, that's interesting because I can talk to 10 people for one minute about whatever, where she in turn had a 10 minute conversation with one person about something deep and meaningful to both mm -hmm. of them. And I like, that's a skill I wish I had. I wish I could mm -hmm. like get more into those layers instead of like, Yes. Going. So I think that's interesting. Like everyone has something they bring to the table. And regardless mm -hmm. if you like small talk, if you don't, there's opportunities for you to establish those connections with with other people. Like you're you're not the only one who doesn't like small talk or you're not yeah. the only one who doesn't like networking. <laughs> yeah. Or not totally. Yeah. So um 
Well, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, one question that we like to ask people is what is your definition of sustainability? Hmm. Um, that's, uh, that is a good question. Um, okay. I guess I'm going to approach this a couple of different ways. <laughs> sustainability, um, to me, there, I think many of us think of the environmental side of sustainability. Um, and I do think, I, I think that's a key part of it, but, um, I, I think true sustainability is uh, good for people and the environment. And I think you cannot, um, there has to be equality as a part of it, as a part of true sustainability. Um, and I think, uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not disadvantaged in, in any way. I'm privileged. I'm a white person. <laughs> I'm a white woman. Um, and I, um, there have been times in my life where, uh, like the idea of eating organic food and, um, this sort of thing was out of reach for me because it's too expensive. And, um, that always just struck me as so wrong. Like I can't, I can't live my ideal because it costs more to be sustainable. Uh, I, I think organic food is more sustainable, decrease the use of pesticides, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, for me, like, um, the, the social piece of, um, the puzzle is, is so huge, um, and, um, tackling, you know, the environmental, um, and climate issues that we face on a broad scale, uh, I think are, are really key. So, um, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the triad, I guess, of sustainability, um, environment, community, and economy. Um, and I would say I, I subscribe to that. And I, I do think that, um, you know, I think, uh, I wouldn't say underlying that, but I think behavior change is, um, kind of a key, like awareness and behavior change are key components of true sustainability. Um, and like for our, for our planet, um, like reducing car dependence and these, this is like behavior change, um, that, that individuals have to, um, enact in developed countries in particular. So. Uh, that wasn't like a clean and concise uh, definition. Sorry about that. Oh. No, it's great. And you actually, I was going to ask him like, what do you think it's evolving into and why? And you, you touched on that. So that's wonderful. And that, you know, this is the question we like to ask because everyone, it's such a, it's been such a buzzword for so long and it's very mm -hmm. meaningful and impactful, but then we think, well, what, how are we defining it? And so everyone mm -hmm. has a different answer. Um, and so it's interesting to hear the different perspectives um, and understandings of how people are using sustainability in, mm -hmm. in the workplace and profession. Yeah. It is I'm hard because kinda... it is kind of a buzzword, right? Like, I mean, and I, uh, like the word sustainability comes from the verb to sustain, which means to last for a long time. Um, and so I, 
or to continue on. So um, I like to think about it in that way. Like what, what actions can we um, do to um, like create lasting like change or, or not even lasting change, but just like a lasting solution. Um, So. And, you know, Julie, that really brings up for me, one thing I struggle with quite a bit is, you know, you feel like a lot of times what you do as an individual just isn't enough, nowhere near enough. Um, And then, you know, with the work you do, you get to work at, you know, either landscape level, regional level, um, And I, you know, wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you take, you know, what your individual beliefs are, what you can do on an individual level, and then bring it to that, you know, landscape or regional level with your work. And um, I find that always maybe a little more meaningful than, you know, trying to, you know, feed my compost or, you know, drive my electric car. And uh, right. Yeah. Wanted to hear from you on that. Yeah. I mean, So some of the, so I, it, it is complicated, um, because, um, we have clients, um, who, you know, they, they have project goals that they come to us with, and it's our job to fulfill their project goals. Um, and we can't always, um, you know, I, I hope this doesn't sound jaded, but we can't always design to our values. Um, thankfully, uh, there are laws in place <laughs> related to water and um, providing access for all kinds of people um, so that, you know, it's not a dilemma for, for certain, in certain ways. Um, but, but the part that we do have a little bit more um, control and ownership over would be um, the things maybe that the client doesn't, you know, they don't care as much about. So like, um, or maybe they do, I don't know. It depends on the client. Right. Um, but uh, for instance, um, selecting plants that are native to that um, ecosystem where, where we're working um, and, in that way, um, we support a landscape that is more sensitive um, to that location, um, and that maybe that's a piece of um, the puzzle that was missing, right? That attracting the pollinators or the the creatures that um, kind of cohabit with that plant or tree or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and, and it can get down into the nitty gritty of like, what do we specify for our soil amendments? You know, is it something more chemically based or is it something more organic? Um, so. Yeah. I was thinking a lot of different things we can do. Because by the nature, it seems the nature of the industry, when you think about landscape architecture and, you know, these massive landscapes that the, it, it would seem that just by nature, they, it has to be sustainable. Like it has to perform. It has to hold up over time. And so while there's laws and regulations in place that 
I would assume, and I, I understand it's like every client's different and who's, you know, who you're doing work for changes, but that the the goal is to be sustainable because and and it's interesting because I I feel like sustainability is actually cost effective over time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and again, it depends what we're talking about here, right? And yeah. I, that's where I could see just having to choose these designs to last. And I, I don't know, is there, uh, I guess, a regulation for the industry over like how long the performance period is? No, uh, not really. Not as far as I know. I mean, there could be something <laughs> that I'm completely <laughs> unaware of. Like your design must last 50 years. I mean, the thing is that, um, you know, once something's built, a building or a highly constructed landscape, it takes it takes a lot of money for and time um, and resources for for that solution to be built. Um, and so once it's out there, it's going to be out there for a while. Um, but you know there there are. I, mean, I did work in um, maybe things that you would call like repositioning or kind of re purposing um, existing landscapes and structures into something that's like brought up to date um, for now. Um, and so the same is true for buildings or for, for landscapes where, you know, a, a good example would be, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of residences have lawns or um, corporate parks have lawns. Um, and so we know that um especially if you're specifying a grass that's not native to, to where we are in California, um, it's going to be a huge water suck and we don't have a lot of water. So, um, so yeah, I think a classic um, or not classic, but like something that we do as landscape architects is figure out like, okay, what's a, what's, how can we shape this to be uh, current with our water resources and um and bring it up to date in terms of current thought about um, like native plants and drought tolerant plants and things like that. So lawn replacement is, is a thing. And when you work on those plans, like in that example for corporate parks and just traditionally developers, commercial developers mm-hmm. of real estate are looking at the bottom line mm-hmm. and like, is there a, like, do you make a case on like why, like, you know, this plant palette is uh, cost effective from like a water savings and like mm-hmm. maintenance perspective? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's not a hard sell. This lawn, uh, looks bad. It has brown spots and you're, you're getting fined because of, um, the irrigation that you need to keep it looking green. Um, so here are some other options for you. You could replace it with a native um, or native adapted um, species, or we can like reduce the fact that we maybe you don't need a mower and we can put in drought tolerant um, and native plantings. Um, and it depends on the goal of the developer. Like they're like, well, I want a social space. We can create a social space that's not on the lawn. Um, and that's okay. So, um, but it's, it's, if, if the client is, is game, then it's not a hard sell because, um, they're, 
you know, they're within their water allotment, for instance, um, and their project is more likely to get permitted because they don't get pushback from the municipality that's uh, permitting um, their their project. Um, and it, um, you know, if uh, presenting an image board of like, look, these are all the pretty plants that we can give you that you don't take a lot of maintenance, that use less water, that are adapted to this region, and you don't need a leaf blower or a mower or anything like that. Um, Not get me started on leaf blowers. <laughs> I, I know, have right? Been on a crusade mm. for four years minimum. I, yes. Yeah. They're always like in the back. Like I feel like the leaf blower starts going like right when I'm in the middle of a meeting and I'm like, why, why do you need that? It's windy. Like they're just going to go <laughs> slow it back and forth across the street to each other. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> it's a game. <sighs> Julie, one thing I wanted to ask you kind of along those lines, um, if you're experiencing much at all, but you know, with, uh, you know, kind of increased listings for pollinator species, um, you know, with monarch butterflies kind of being the, you know, newest uh, pollinator expected to, you know, be listed under the Endangered Species Act. Are you getting any pushback or hesitation for in your landscape design, putting in things like milkweed or anything that could become an attractant to, you know, species who need it, but then also now bringing in an endangered species to, uh, you know, a project or or something that could then have the potential to harm or or, or take that species. I'm just wondering if you've experienced that yet, or, um, you know, any kind of key considerations there that you're using in your practice. Yeah, I I haven't that particular example about monarch butterflies. Like, I haven't experienced any pushback about that. Um, what I have experienced pushback, um from which is uh, insects, bees in particular. And so I've done education work and, you know, people don't want, if you say, oh, this plant attracts pollinators, they're like, which ones? You can't have any bees around the children. <laughs> so butterflies, yes. Hummingbirds, yes. Um, the generation no. traumatized by my girl. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, you get the spectrum of responses when, when you say as a landscape architect, oh, this, you know, we're like, I'll start you. Oh, this, this attracts beneficial insects and pollinators. And, and then you get the spectrum of like, oh, that's great. We love that. Let's have more, you know, to like, uh, you know, resistance and, um, you know, no bees or wasps. Yeah. So, um, you really have to be prepared, um, with your factual knowledge of like what it is that you're proposing, how tall does it get? What, what insects and pollinators are attracted to that plant? Um, what are the water requirements? Like you really have to know your stuff before you, kind of start steering the ship in a different direction because rightfully so there are going to be a lot of questions about it. Yeah. I like the be prepared. Yeah. No <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love ah, it. That's funny. Um, well, uh, we were at our time. This went uh, really fast for me. I, I started to think of 10 more questions and I was like, <laughs> well, that's probably about that time. So 
we'll wrap up. Uh, unless Corinne, if you have any other questions or Julie, any comments, we'll get into our wrap up rapid five. No, I think let's do it. Good. All right. So Julie, what is your favorite daily habit? Uh, for me, mm-hmm. morning meditation for my daughter and I reading every night. Oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, what are three things you'd bring to a deserted island? Oh man. Um, water, <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably a writing implement, pencil or pen and a sketchbook. That's, I know that's such a kind of question, like a icebreaker type question over the years, but it's one of my favorite ones still, because you can tell so much about a person on how they answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is your favorite environmental policy? Oh, I just actually learned about when um, California is planning to preserve 30% of its lands and coastal waters by 2030, which I think is great. I'm curious to know more about it, Um, you know, how sensitive this policy is, but um, I think it's it's good that it's lands and coastal waters um, that we're planning to preserve. And it's, it's actually nationwide too. The um, oh. Biden administration just put out their 30, 30, 30 guidance. Sweet. Yay. More to love about it then. Great. I love it. Learning something new. <clears throat> okay. What is your favorite flora or fauna? I actually really love um, California poppy. Um, I'm California native. When I see those poppies coming out, um, blanketing the hillsides in the spring. It just makes my heart go pitter patter. So it's your time to, it's your time of year then. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. And finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if, if we could just snap our fingers and be where we need to be like teleport, like (laughs) I want to be in San Diego. Boom. There you am. I love it. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks for joining. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.